1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This podcast contains explicit language.
1: This week, the U.S. Senate stumbled forward on tax reform with a government shutdown looming around the corner.
3: North Korea launched a missile that could theoretically reach Washington, so we all might die.
1: And men continue to be bad. Why are bad men being thrown out of their media jobs, but not their political ones?
3: I'm Elise Foley.
1: I'm Arthur Delaney.
3: And this is So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics podcast about things that happened in politics.
1: Hello, this is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in the HuffPost podcast studio by Igor Bobek. Hey, Arthur. And Elise Foley. Hello. And this week, tax reform is a hot agenda item. Also, the government might shut down. That's a problem. Is it? it? it uh, well, depends. Now, it's, <laughs> what's funny it about is. these things, yes, it is. these two big things, plus like a hundred other moderately big things are all happening at once, the way lawmakers have handled their schedule this year, is that everything's coming to a head in December. And at this point, on on Thursday afternoon, it does not appear as though there is any plan for keeping the government from shutting down in December. Uh, But first, we'll talk about the taxes. It actually does look like Republicans are making significant progress on getting their tax bill through Congress which is bad news for me because I unnecessarily boldly predicted that this legislation would flop and in the event that it does not flop I will have to eat a shit sandwich so ooh that's that, going to be interesting that's not so good anyway <laughs> igor this the senate could vote on this late thursday night early friday morning or you know maybe the, uh, all hell will break loose and that won't happen it's happened but, before but uh, you've been in the Senate, covering this closely, how does it seem things are going? Uh,
4: the general atmosphere in compared to the push to repeal Obamacare to compared to tax reform is completely different. Um, basically, every Republican senator sounds like they want to get the yes. Um, the senators who voted to oppose Obamacare repeal last time, uh, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and John McCain, are all on board this time, at least for the moment. Um appears like they're going to have the votes to, to get this thing through. But- and they're
3: confident. They accidentally tweeted, the Senate Republican account accidentally tweeted that they just passed it. Really? And they had to delete that. That's Ooh. awesome. They had to delete it. Wow. So they think it's happening. The House uh, already scheduled having to vote on Monday to go to conference, so.
1: So going They to, think
3: they're going to make it.
1: Going to conference is a crucial detail here because a funny thing about the Senate legislation that they're preparing to vote for as we speak is that nobody really knows what's in it. They are writing it like on napkins in a cloakroom. Off the Senate floor, I'm it's
3: very inspiring. <laughs> to watch,
1: I am not. Exaggerating. It's not like there's a, a deadline for this tax legislation. Like I know they talk about it being urgently needed, but well, it's well, not. Trump said he wants a Christmas gift, right? Oh, right. Yeah. So for so for Christmas, they it's want early
3: to do still for Christmas shopping.
1: Yeah, I haven't done any Christmas I shopping haven't either. So the Senate bill repeals the Obamacare requirement that everyone has to buy insurance. Susan Collins said she'd support the bill only if. Congress passes a separate piece of health legislation before the conference vote. Uh, Here is a little recording I made in the Senate basement with a, a not ideal recording device.
2: I am pushing to make sure that they are passed and signed into law prior to the conference report coming back on the tax bill so that I would know for certain that we're going to be able to mitigate the impact of repeal of the individual mandate.
1: Okay, so this is either an assurance she's really been given or a clever escape hatch for her to vote to approve the legislation but still reserve the right to vote no. On the conference committee, which is hopeful for me because, uh, you know, I, like I said, predicted that this, the tax bill would flop.
4: I, th- I think she's being earnest. Uh, th- she's always meant what she has said throughout this entire process, throughout health care. And she stood by her pledge not to support repealing Obamacare. So I think this time she genuinely wants these things in there. The question is whether um, – whether conservative Republicans fall in line and they actually want to vote for some of the stuff that they've decried as you know bailouts to insurers. Um, so really she's she's making a risky bet as well.
1: So she says she wants this offsetting uh, beneficial health legislation signed into law before she votes for a final tax package but and this is where the shutdown drama comes to the fore because there's a whole bunch of stuff that they're going to have to pass. And presumably Collins thinks that the health care items could just be inserted into an, a must-pass piece of legislation that funds the government and a lease that would do something for uh, immigrants. Can you explain the DACA piece here?
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, as people might already know, um, Trump put uh, hundreds of thousands of young people who came – undocumented people who came to the U.S. as kids – at risk of losing their work permits and, um, you know, at risk of deportation by ending the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program uh, that was started under Obama, that um, that they're not losing those protections right away, but um, people will start to have them expire. They're already having them expire, and they will start to in larger numbers in March. So Democrats have said that they're not – a lot of Democrats have said that they're not going to vote for something, any must-pass bill by the end of the year – Unless it has something to help dreamers, which Trump, you know, has sort of said that he cares about doing. Republicans have said they want to do. But then, you know, they've a lot of them shown very little urgency on that. Um, so there's this big push from Democrats who know that Republicans need their votes to get anything done here on spending to include that. But as of you know Thursday afternoon, there has not been any sort of deal made. Uh, Paul Ryan said on Thursday that, you know, well, as far as we know, we have until March 5th and we have other deadlines before then. So it's a huge, huge question mark whether they'll be able to get something like that in. And if they don't get something like that in, there is a huge likelihood of a government shutdown.
1: So Republicans need Democrats to fund the government. So Democrats have some leverage. And the biggest thing that Democrats want is this Dreamers provision. Meanwhile, Susan Collins also needs Democrats to to join with Republicans to pass this health stuff for Susan Collins to support the tax bill. This is before we even get into a bunch of other things that are expiring or have expired, such as Igor, the children's health insurance program. Mm -hmm. And there could be dire consequences if they don't get that passed as well.
4: Yeah. It, it. I One senator I talked to in the Hill today described it uh, as kind of a, a devil's soup. Like you add in one ingredient that somebody else might not like. You take out another ingredient that somebody wants in there. And, uh, you know, you've got moving pieces everywhere and n- not everybody's going to be satisfied. And that's the hardest part in trying to wrangle out the votes they need.
1: But that without the underlying – so the children's health thing expired and it's out of money and some states are going to – Run out of money to take care of children, as I understand it.
4: Yeah, they've they've got some money already that was appropriated to them uh, they've, that they've been using in order to you know keep children on health insurance, but that's going to run out at some point, and they they need money badly. I think something like 18 states are projected to run out of money by January. Um, so this is going to get I, I, it's got to get done
1: this month, next month, December. So the tax bill, which is their top priority, is happening in the midst of this devil's soup with just like a hundred other problems all coming to a head at the same time. I think that's a good environment for bold predictions. <laughs> I predict that the government won't shut down. Uh, the first funding deadline is December 8th. So that's the soonest it could happen. And they're supposedly saying, well, we'll have a short extension of funding until December Twenty-second,
4: Trump said earlier this year that you know maybe we need a shutdown. The president, he
3: said that. The problem is that uh, I don't know that that means that he would not sign something if it came to his desk. And I think that there is an understanding with congressional leaders that they do not really want a government shutdown. So I think that they understand it better the issue better than Trump does. At the same time, um, there's a lot of people who have kind of painted them who have painted themselves into corners here, and it'll be hard for them to back off of the things that they've said that they're going to fight for. I I don't know. I think, I'm not going to make a bold prediction. <laughs> I refuse.
4: Oh, man. I think it depends on how much faith you have in the backbone of Democrats, which not a lot of people do, because the Republicans have already proven once that they have the the backbone to to go through with it. Yeah. To Go through the shutdown. But Democrats, I, I have less faith in them. Think- well,
3: and I, I do want to add that for all of the stories and the talk that Democrats are, you know, going to refuse to vote for anything without a dreamer protection in it. Uh, not that many of them have actually said that they would definitely, definitely oppose anything without it. They've said that they want, you know, they want it. It should be in there, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, you know, these little nuanced differences between saying we demand it be in there and actually saying I will vote for um, against anything that doesn't have it. So, you know, there's some wiggle room. Well, there.
1: They've been pretty tight lipped in general, is my yeah. impression, that it's uh, it's mainly Republicans talking about what has to get done. So they were supposed to make progress on this this week with a meeting between Donald Trump and congressional Republicans and Democrats at the White House. And Trump, before the meeting, said, you know what? Chuck and Nancy are coming over, but I don't think uh, you know, we're going to have a deal. And then Chuck and Nancy said, well, fine, we're not coming. And that was actually like a huge setback.
4: And this was Wednesday on Days of Our Lives.
1: Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so,
3: Well, they said, fine, if you won't make a deal with us, we'll just work with McConnell and Ryan and we'll make a deal. That's how we do better anyway. And then McConnell and Ryan said, no, <laughs> we're going to the White House. And, uh, and they staged at Photoshop yeah, with some empty was, chairs. Yeah. So everybody basically just dug in their heels and refused. Now nobody's talking to each other. It
1: recalled the I think
3: that they are behind the scenes.
1: It recalled the, the Clint Eastwood empty chair from the uh, 2012 Republican National Convention. Yeah, it was well, a, it was a good stunt
3: pretending that they just could not move those Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi name tags off the table. They definitely were going to sit flanking him. All of them having a meeting, so <laughs> on the it. same side of the table. I
1: like that. I thought it was clever.
3: It was. It was funny.
1: I think most people. Yeah, are, I'm
3: not mad about it. Re- I'm just
1: Republicans spun that as fake. Chuck and Nancy completely owning themselves by not trying to negotiate with Trump, who'd proven pliable to them in the past. But I don't know. It's it's a pretty unpredictable situation. I already feel dumb about my bold prediction.
3: I mean, there's there's been times in the past sure where they've done well in their negotiations their deals with him but then there are other times where they came out of a meeting and said oh we came to a deal on the dreamers and border security and then he backed out of it so you know i i think negotiating with trump is a real crapshoot
1: all right tax reform and government shutdown are coming we'll be right back
3: millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom
1: hi it's me arthur delaney and i have a special request if you like so that happened please consider giving us a shout out on itunes give us four or five stars please don't give us fewer than four though Uh, think of us as like an uber but for political commentary so if, if we get a low rating they'll take our car away thank you And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by two foreign policy experts. One of them is HuffPost's own Jessica Schulberg. Hello. And the other is a very special guest, Mike Fuchs, a foreign policy expert and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Hello. Hi. So North Korea, are they going to blow us up? That's right. I mean, they launched a huge missile and everyone was surprised by how far it could go. And they said that theoretically they could blow up Washington, D.C., With a missile that goes the distance that 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 one could. So they're going to blow us up, Mike?
2: I'd say don't curl up in the fetal position just yet, uh, (laughs) but get a little bit nervous. So what the test this week proved was that North Korea has the ability now to launch a missile that could reach basically anywhere in the United States. What we don't know is whether or not they've mastered the technology to actually miniaturize a nuclear warhead, put it on top of that missile, and then launch it into the atmosphere and have it survive going into space and coming back uh, into the Earth's atmosphere. We don't know yet whether or not they have that capability. So may still be a little bit of ways away from it, but they're getting pretty close. Because they have
1: nuclear bombs, like huge ones, that they blow up on the floor over there. And they separately have these rockets that go really far and high. Yeah. But you can't just tape the bomb to the rocket and have it work. I
2: mean, they could try.
1: (laughs) I'm not sure it would work. You could try. (laughs) So what is the response from Washington? Donald Trump was just like, you know, we'll take care of it. Like, okay, great. You know, you have sort of presided over a continued escalation. It seems like the most rapid escalation of tensions between the U.S. and North Korea uh, in the last what twenty years, maybe it's it's just the continuing of what had been going on before. Can you please, the two of you, disentangle uh, what to what extent this is like the Trump administration is doing and just the status quo from before.
0: I think most of it's a continuation of what was going on before. Uh, North Korea was definitely rapidly advancing its missile technology even before Trump came into office. I think on the North Korean side, there was a little bit of a hope of maybe a restart with the Trump administration. And they did hold off on tests uh, right after the election for a couple months. Uh, Trump then came in with this very, very aggressive rhetoric. Uh, these personal insults against Kim Jong Un, calling him "little rocket man," and kind of, kind of calling his bluff, kind of, kind of daring him to prove that he could actually hit the U.S., threatening that the U.S. Uh, could engage in regime change or military interference over there. Um, so I think he's definitely not helping a very fragile, escalatory situa- situation. But I think it would also be a mistake to say that this is all a direct result to our. Beloved
1: president. So, Mike Fuchs, if Donald Trump were not calling Kim Jong-un short and fat, this might be happening anyway.
2: Yeah, right. Instead of having your usual scenario for the past couple of decades of well, a toddler coming from North Korea and acting uh, you know, like a three-year-old uh, in terms of the way they talk with the threats and all the rest of it, we've now got two of them um, on both sides. Because so, North Korea always makes these really weird statements that are like threatening and macho. Oh, yeah, and they create these crazy YouTube-style videos that look like they were made in someone's basement of sort of you know Washington, D.C or some other American city blowing up. Um, But uh, again, this is sort of, you know, par for the course for North Korea. What they've never experienced before is a counterpart that did something similar. uh, And I think they found that in Donald Trump. Uh, So if we didn't have President Trump, it's hard to know exactly what would be going on today. I think some people believe that Kim Jong-un would be also racing towards the capability to reach the United States with a nuclear warhead. Um, This is something North Koreans have been wanting for many years. Uh, But I think I completely agree that President Trump's rhetoric, his taunts, his insults uh, have escalated tensions. And frankly, I think it's made it more difficult to engage in the diplomacy that's necessary.
1: Well, speaking of that, this is happening simultaneously with other – foreign policy developments. Namely, there's like turmoil at the U.S. Department of State. On Thursday, we heard that Trump was possibly going to ditch Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in in favor of the current CIA director, uh, Mike Pompeo. That can't help. I mean, I know there's not a lot of people who – who talk to counterparts in North Korea specifically, but... Mike
0: Pompeo is definitely not one
1: of them. Right. So so how does that State Department stuff affect uh, how we handle North Korea?
0: Well, it's not even just the State Department. If Pompeo left the CIA, it's been reported that perhaps Tom Cotton, who's a very uh, hawkish Republican senator from Arkansas, could be in line to replace him at the CIA, Um, I have a hard time believing that that could clear a Senate confirmation. Um, But if that were to be the case, you'd have these two very ideologically driven men, uh, Mike Pompeo and Tom Cotton, at the head of our intelligence bureau and our diplomatic headquarters. Um, And those two men don't inspire a ton of confidence that we would be able to engage in this sort of delicate back channel uh, beginning of diplomatic engagement with the North Koreans, which at this point is kind of our only hope. I mean, everybody freaks out every time there's another um, launch out of North Korea and says, oh my God, now they can hit the U.S. The reality is that they've been steadily advancing in their capabilities for years now. They probably aren't going to stop until they get the exact capability they want. And then they can come to us and say, hey, we can blow up D.C., want to talk.
2: No, look, I I mean, I completely agree with that, although I will say on the issue of North Korea in particular, an issue of this importance, level of importance to the United States – direction really does come from the top. It comes from the president uh, and the White House. And for months now, all reports indicate that Secretary Tillerson and his team have been wanting to push diplomacy, uh, but frankly, have been held up by President Trump's activity, uh, his words, uh, and the White House's guidance. And so again, a change at the State Department or at the CIA uh, may not actually affect that at the end of the day. That's
1: right. I recall specifically Donald Trump saying, hey, Kim Jong-un... Don't bother talking to Rex Tillerson, it's a waste of time.
0: And then Rex Tillerson says, yes, we're pursuing all possible methods of diplomacy and Trump tweets the next day, no, diplomacy is a waste of time.
1: Right. So around that time it came out that Tillerson had called Trump a moron and that was like a big news cycle. for. Jessica, you have reported how we do have a sort of informal diplomatic relationship with like um, a couple people from North Korea and they meet in an office above a Hallmark store in New York City. So that w- that's just going to keep – that's the main thing that's going on, right?
0: Right. I mean these days I think – so those are um, North Korean ambassadors who are based out of the North Korean UN mission in New York. Um, and there's a couple people there who sort of have the U.S. portfolio. Their job is specifically to report back on what the Americans are thinking, what, what, what the response from Washington has been, and also to be available to meet with – Either diplomats from the State Department or what they call track two diplomats, which are people from think tanks, um, professors, academics, just North Korea experts who have diplomacy minded objectives, and they sort of serve as this unofficial liaison between the North Koreans and Washington. Um, I think Mike could probably speak better to so it's re- how well, it is that is. it's reassuring
1: that that exists instead of just nothing because sort when
0: there's. Of. <laughs>
2: Oh, sort of? Oh. I'm <laughs> everything I'm Everything that seems reassuring about North Korea policy is only sort of reassuring. It's, like uh, it's, it's better never... than
0: the worst case scenario. Exactly.
2: It's never that good. But on the on the diplomacy, I mean, look for years the sort of bottom of U.S. North Korea uh, engagement is through what's called the New York Channel, which is basically through the North Korea's offices at the United Nations, where relatively lower level diplomats would engage with one another to make sure that certain messages were being passed back and forth. If you needed to complain about something in particular, you go up there and you wag your finger a little bit um, and make sure the message is going to get through. But And higher-level diplomatic talks, they don't really exist right now. They've only been sporadic in the past. And we have no direct, immediate line of communication. There's no U.S. embassy in Pyongyang, uh, no North Korean embassy in Washington. So if there was a crisis that broke out and you needed to urgently pick up the phone and get in touch with, say, your foreign minister counterpart, that wouldn't be quite as simple as it would with any other country.
1: And I understand that that, having that kind of relationship is important for, like, avoiding an accidental conflict – uh, like a, a plane crashing or a, uh, something like that. So, if a conflict does happen, my understanding is that South Korea would basically be attacked, and that our that our allies in the region would be in more trouble than the United States itself. You know, the long rocket notwithstanding. Like that's that's the problem here, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, as scary as it sounds when the headlines read, you know, North Korea missile can reach the United States, the reality here is that the situation has not fundamentally changed for decades. Um, for many, many years, North Korea has had the ability to completely destroy Seoul, the capital of South Korea, uh, and much of that country, frankly. And that's not just about. South Koreans. That's about Americans. We've got more than 28,000 American troops stationed in South Korea. There are hundreds of thousands of American citizens living in South Korea. So this game of deterrence that we've been playing with North Korea for years, frankly, still remains. It's not just uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un. Though We have allies
1: and frenemies in that region. What are they doing differently now, if anything?
2: Well, I think, look, I mean, uh, Japan, which is our other major ally in Northeast Asia, um, takes a pretty hard line, especially under its current prime minister, Shinzo Abe. Uh, They don't like seeing North Korea do what it's doing. These rockets go over Japan. Right, exactly. And they feel threatened, obviously. And Shinzo Abe has has created a pretty good relationship with Donald Trump so far. So they've been pretty hand-in-hand, hand, uh, Trump and Abe, in uh, speaking uh, very loudly and getting very tough on North Korea. Uh, on the other hand, you got China. And China has always been stuck between Iraq and a hard place on North Korea. On the one hand, they don't like North Korea. North Korea is kind of a pain in the behind for them, You know, constantly launching off rockets, creating pain for them in the international community. Uh, everyone wants China to solve the problem. So they don't like that. At the same time, They don't want the United States, which has troops just over the border in South Korea, to uh, successfully help unify. Korea, which might mean there was a U.S. ally with American troops right up against the Chinese border. Uh, They don't want that to happen either. And they don't want the chaos of regime change and instability in North Korea. So they always find themselves trying to do a little more, but not quite so much as they would destroy the regime.
1: So China is muddling through, but President Trump is constantly tweeting at Xi Jinping like, do something. You know, why don't you do something? Right? That's how I read Trump's tweets as like, come on, man. Like, just sort of why, nagging him. Why haven't him. you
0: fixed this?
1: Yeah. And depending
0: on the day, I mean, Trump's interpretation of whether or not China's done enough, even that changes. You know, sometimes you say, oh, look at all these things that China's cut off to North Korea. They're they're really taking it seriously. They listen to me. I'm strong. I'm powerful. Everything's great. And then, you know, a week later, he's pissed off at China and he says that they, they could fix this crisis in a second if they want and they just won't do it. And they're bad guys.
2: Yeah, I mean, Trump seems to act like a guy who's read one too many news stories about how Xi Jinping and China is the answer to North Korea. When, of course, they're part of the solution, but they're not the entire thing.
1: Yeah, it it seems actually like his understanding of events might be somewhat superficial. Uh, Maybe if he read one or two more stories. And maybe
2: tweeted a few fewer times, uh, things would be better.
1: All right, well, hopefully we don't die. Uh, Mike Fuchs from Center for American Progress, thank you so much for coming in. Jessica Schulberg, thanks to you as well. We'll be right back.
3: This is Elise Foley, and I'm here with HuffPost Arthur Delaney. Hello, and Marina Fang. Hi, and we're here for our now uh, seemingly weekly segment on creepy men. Um, so, you know, hopefully, maybe someday we'll we'll get to stop doing these. But the basic rundown um, this week, and you guys can jump in if I've missed anybody. Um, we are up to six accusers of uh, e- creepy uh, conduct by Al Franken, the senator. Uh, we have multiple people who have said they were sexually harassed by Congressman John Conyers. Um, Matt Lauer is now out of a job because of sexual harassment. Garrison Keeler, uh, Russell Simmons. <laughs> I probably have forgotten some people, but
1: a CNN producer, a CNN yes. yes.
3: And basically, what we um, wanted to talk a little bit about is a recent piece that you did, Marina, um, about how different things are hand differently things are handled between Hollywood and also corporate corporate America these days and uh, politics, where it seems like you can go on and be, you know, clearly the president or all sorts of other things, and you know, have all these skeletons in your closet and nobody cares. Maybe get elected. Send yeah.
5: Um, so I wrote this last week, but I mean, it continues to be relevant. Seemingly every day, um, and it focused on Hollywood specifically, but I mean, it, it really applies across the board. Just politics Public versus figures, kind right of, who
3: aren't in politics, right?
5: Exactly in politi- or in entertainment, in media, even in Silicon Valley. Um, basically, the the problem there there are a couple of problems, and a lot of these reasons are kind of baked into each other. But the the obvious difference here is that politics is involved. And so when people have these partisan and ideological concerns, they're going to put those ahead of um, their, I guess, their moral compass. And we've seen this a lot with Roy Moore and his supporters. Uh, Many of them don't seem to care about these pretty morally terrible allegations and just continue to deny them
3: or at the very least say that you know we do care we don't want it's pretty bad that this guy is probably a pedophile but it's worse that you know Doug Jones his Democratic opponent right. Trump himself doesn't oppose has said that enough.
5: yeah right they don't want quote a liberal person in there um, they want their you know tax reform vote they want their Supreme Court justices etc um, but another reason is that there just isn't Any sort of mechanism to remove people from office um, very quickly. There's really just voting. One of the academics I talked to said that voting is a very imperfect mechanism for removing someone because you only have elections every couple years for the most part. Um, And then in Congress, you have this very elaborate Byzantine process of reporting sexual misconduct incidents that often doesn't really go anywhere. Um, You have ethics investigations, but that, again, that takes a long time. Conyers is currently undergoing an ethics investigation, um, as is Al Franken, but these can take months, perhaps even years. Um, Whereas in corporate America, in, you know, in entertainment, in media, a lot of these businesses realize, okay, this is a moral. An economic liability to have a uh, sexual predator or alleged sexual predator in uh, in our company or as the host of our show or as the star of our movie. So we're going to decide to remove him.
1: This is maybe a crass moment to make the point, but it it partly reflects the fact that with at will employment, which is the the typical arrangement in the United States, you can just fire someone on the spot at any time. Right. Like we yeah. have weak worker protection, so the private sector, if they have a creep on their hands, it is like see a creep.
3: Yeah, they managed that. Uh, the Matt Lauer uh, news. They said that uh, the somebody came to them, the executives, I believe, on Monday night, and by Wednesday morning, he was out of there. So, yeah, they they can respond really quickly. Um. At this point, now we have Nancy Pelosi, Paul Ryan, um, calling for Conyers to step down. The problem, right, is that they can't make him do that. They he has to decide to do right. that. And his attorney
5: actually said that. He said, "Well, okay, Pelosi and Ryan have the right to say that, but ultimately, it's up for it's up to Conyers to decide." And he, uh, through his lawyer, has been very defiant. Um, continues to deny all of these allegations and says that he won't step down.
3: and we should say as we record this, he's currently uh, hospitalized, so um th- th- for stress is what they have said. right. um, um I think so he he has not uh, spoken today uh, sorry Thursday <laughs> uh, but <laughs> his his attorney did speak, you know, on his behalf and was very um. Stubborn about you know no Pelosi can say what she wants but right he gets there, to decide. Another
1: congressman made an interesting point, defended him. It's the flip side of the uh, accountability question when you're elected,
5: right? It's, you're talking about Clyburn, right?
1: There's no mechanism for immediately throwing them out, and there's also this rhetorical uh, point that Clyburn made in yeah, this clip exactly. we've got here. Yeah, exactly.
5: It's it's the exact point of this of this piece I wrote, pretty much. It kind of encapsulates all these problems.
3: All right, let's listen to the clip. Other men in
1: other industries have faced similar accusations and gotten out of the way, resigned, stepped down far faster than he has.
2: Right? I know you would have to give me some examples.
1: Uh, Harvey Weinstein, Charlie Rose, Rose, Matt Lauer.
2: Who who elected that? Right. I don't think down.
0: So it's different because he's elected.
3: Okay, so that was that was Clyburn. Um he later though did say that he thought Conyer should step down, which I, I think kind of also shows that uh, there is a push on these other elected officials to condemn their colleagues. Which is something that you know maybe is is somewhat new to the current moment that we're in. So right, that's that's notable. Uh, I think yeah. that they uh, you know a lot of people have come out pretty quickly against their colleagues. However, their colleagues have not uh, actually stepped down. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Pelosi got a lot of flack for. Um, to some extent, defending or praising Conyers, yeah, and, and then initially, ended up backing away from right, that.
5: Initially, also didn't believe the women. She said, "Oh, like they're anonymous. I don't know who they are." But then she later backtracked and said, "I've spoken to one of the accusers, one of the named accusers, Melanie Sloan, who is um, an attorney who used to work for Conyers on the House Judiciary Committee." She, so Pelosi said, "Oh, I spoke to her, and now I believe her." Had, and, had there
1: been any widely known? Reason to be skeptical of the Conyers' accusers but at the time that Pelosi said, you know, I I don't know.
5: So she said this on Sunday. This was after Melanie Sloan had come forward. So I guess she just – maybe she didn't know. But um, I think to your point, Elise, like part of the other thing that's changed is that I think people are more – they're willing to believe the accusers more than they were maybe –
3: yeah. Prior and, and what I'm situations. curious to see is whether uh it, because another thing that happened this week is that the House voted to require sexual harassment training. And that's going to be every session and include members and also staff. And that's that's great. But uh, Politico reported that Conyers office already had sexual harassment training. So you can put people through training and people, you know, should go through training, et cetera. But. The biggest problem we have um, is these people who are in power and think that they can, just because they have power, they can do whatever they want and they can sexually harass people. I think that, you know, possibly the way that we can prevent this from happening is having a climate where women feel Or anyone who's harassed feels comfortable coming forward and reporting it and naming, you know, naming these people. And so I think that that could be a way that things could change potentially is that, you know, you see more people more as more women come out and are believed and the men suffer some sort of consequences. Then uh, maybe there will be fewer creepy men. I don't I don't know. That's my my hope. Yeah. Yeah. That and
5: also just having a better process for removing people, like I said, in in these situations where it's not involved politicians, uh, you know, the board of a company can can unilaterally make this decision. Um, And they also they also have their consumers in mind or their viewers or their audiences. They don't.
3: Yeah, they don't want to do something that looks bad on them. Right. They didn't want Matt Lauer going out there on Wednesday morning the same day that, you know, this was going to get reported. And Variety and New York Times were both looking into Matt Lauer, had been researching Matt Lauer stories for a while. They don't want him out there in the Today Show and every all the viewers being like, uh, excuse me, what right. what is that <laughs> creep doing up there? I just read about him having some, you know, button that locks his door at his desk. Uh, oh, my God. That was yeah. creepy.
1: Now Who well apparently that? apparently a lot of people yeah, have apparently. that as a security measure which I don't good,
3: not a good example.
1: I don't understand Allegedly why that. Allegedly gave
3: yeah. a coworker a sex toy. Uh, that's another thing. And exposed himself. Yes, yeah, There are many many creepy things by him.
5: Um, yeah, but going back to the point of like having a mechanism for removal, I think the point the, the the biggest one of the biggest things that this is exposing Congress is that this process for reporting sexual misconduct is just so ineffective um a lot of critics have said that that it really doesn't help the accuser at all it benefits the perpetrator Um, so that's shocking that congress would put something in place that benefits themselves right Um, and and that's another big difference in these different cases
1: now they have uh, voted i think this week to institute training like Right.
5: right but as elise was saying like that that's just you know a drop in the bucket when it comes to the actual reforms that they need to take. We should mention that um, Jackie Speer, the Democratic congressman from Congresswoman from California, has a bill called the Me Too Act, which is supposed to address this larger overhaul of the process. But that seems to be uh, more like slowly moving through well, at this yeah. point.
3: I mean, ho- who knows, though, it might get a boost by more people being exposed um, I, th- I think there is pressure on, you know, clearly politicians to speak out ag- against this stuff. So we'll see. Maybe maybe that b- bill will have more success than yeah, expected. Maybe. But um, anyway, well, thank you for ta- coming in and talking about it. Um, I'm sure we'll have more to update listeners with uh, <laughs> oh, soon about. Yeah. Do we have uh, um, uh, any bold then? predictions? Bold predictions. Um,
1: well, Franken step down. These, they're starting to pile up.
3: They're really starting mm, to pile up with yeah. him. And and I think one of the notable things with his is that he keeps saying he doesn't remember, which either he does and he's lying, or if he doesn't truly doesn't remember and they truly did it's, happen, that means he does it so much that he can't remember and it's like, all it's like it's, it's like
1: butt grabbing. Like, yeah. You know you're constantly grabbing people's butts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know that I'm so, not.
3: So yeah, I think that he'll <laughs> resign.
1: Yes, that's both. I think
3: bold. will resign.
1: Those are bold predictions. Those are my bold predictions. I second, They're probably wrong. I second those I, bold predictions.
5: I don't know. I was about to say that by the time listeners hear this, there will probably be me, be more alleged sexual predators revealed. That's not a bold prediction at that's all. That's
1: not like, bold. That's, that's <laughs> that, probably wow. going to happen. That wasn't bold at all, Marina.
3: <laughs> bold at all. Oh. Well, thank you, Marina uh, and Arthur. Uh, and we will have more to come.
1: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, Igor Bobik, Jessica Schulberg, and Marina Feng, as well as Mike Fuchs, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at huffpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening.